Welcome back to Tech Talk with Hayden and Alyssa. So last week, I cut it out of what uh, we were saying, or what I said. I brought up virtual kitchens or cloud kitchens. I don't know Which how to... Which had nothing to do with what you were talking about. I would I... like to state that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's why I took it out. It was like a transition we had from like Amazon's uh, transportation or just like how they could get products from yeah and then we went into colonization and then we went into virtual kitchens yeah so virtual kitchens uh that's what we're going to start off with today virtual kitchens disney laying off a significant amount of people i think it was twenty-eight thousand, which is huge and then linkedin is our last part Alyssa showed you what virtual kitchens are. What are your thoughts on them now? <laughs> well, now that I've actually read up on what a virtual kitchen is, I think they're pretty effective and they're actually pretty dominant in especially the delivery, food delivery industry already. See, when I heard the idea of a virtual kitchen or a cloud kitchen, I'm thinking, oh, this is some kitchen in space that just like makes food appear in front of you. I'm sorry, I think the name does not actually describe the function. But yes, I saw the Shark Tank episode, actually, I went back and watched it, of Salted, and it's funny because Salted, as you probably know, Hayden, they have a ton of brands that are virtual kitchens. Yeah, Yeah. you showed me them, too. Yeah, I I saw the video. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and one of them, I had no idea it was under this company, but Cauliflower Pizza, I've literally ordered that in the past. I had no idea that was a quote-unquote virtual kitchen with no dining options, I figured, oh, it's probably some L.A. healthy eatery trying to make pizza healthy and got it at, you know, like 10 at night. And I just thought it was a normal restaurant. Turns out, I find out, what, a few days ago that that's part of a brand of companies that are all virtual kitchens and there's no dine-in option. Yeah, I think, especially due to COVID, I think when it was originally recorded, COVID was definitely not a big concern. It's a kitchen with no sit-down eating their whole purpose is to make food and they ship food um fresh after they've already cooked it to whoever orders it they can order it on uber eats uh doordash postmates any of those direct to consumer food i don't know what they call what they're called app based food things i don't know it's like food it's food retailing yeah it's uh just on demand food um and you don't even have to leave your house So that's how they have the purchase factor or like the point of sale between consumer and business. They're pretty cool because think about how much they don't have to spend on servers, utensils, on the rent space itself, the tables, the chairs, and all of that. They don't have to wash a bunch of dishes every day. They don't have to hire a dishwasher. There is so much that they're cutting in cost and sure, they up their price just a little bit to cover expenses through those Postmates, DoorDash uh, type companies, and they're very easy to make a profit on. I forget if the guy on Shark Tank made a invest or he got an investment from whoever was the uh, judges at the time or the sharks. It's It seems very profitable, especially during COVID when no one is really excited to go out or just meet in person. People are just conscious about going out. It's a very ease of access way of getting food and you don't have to cook that's another great thing people like not cooking sometimes yeah so i believe that salted didn't actually get the deal but they are backed by three like top tier vc firms and i think with this industry like 
ghost kitchens, virtual kitchens, shared, the a million names that they're giving this business model because they don't know what to call it yet. <laughs> I think it will be an extremely profitable business model. And honestly, COVID-19, you never think like, oh, this is the optimal time to start a business. It is the optimal time yeah. to start a virtual kitchen because when you don't have the money, you don't have the finances for all of the startup costs associated with starting a business, a restaurant, think about like you have to finance the actual space that you're leasing, you have to finance the servers, you have to finance everything, all the materials. And that's cutting out a huge portion of the operating costs so that during this COVID time when people can't go dine in at restaurants or people are immunocompromised and physically cannot go out, they're building this brand image and this identity for their restaurants that honestly, I didn't know that some of these weren't physical restaurants that I could go dine in at. Yeah. They're building brand identity at the same time and getting this revenue stream. So if they wanted that option once COVID ended to create this dine in portion, they would have the money in the brand from having these virtual kitchens. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Like, yeah. you can still transition into yeah. buying the actual location. Better way to transition, too, once yeah. you actually have money to finance it. Yeah, and let alone the startup uh, cost at the beginning, it's a lot cheaper, like you said. And I don't know, that was the only one I know of exactly, Salted, and there was it owned, like, five names that mm -hmm. um, are under those sites. It's interesting. Like, recently, Disney laid off, 28,000 people because no one's going to parks. They don't have to cover the cost of all, all the people. They only have to cover the cost of the chefs. They don't even need to co cover the cost of the people of the drivers that drive their food when they're using a third-party service like Uber Eats and DoorDash. And Disney, for example, because there it was 28,000 primarily amongst their parks because of course no one's going to parks during COVID-19. Right now, I think their main revenue source is Disney Plus, which makes sense, but I don't I don't know how much Disney exclusive content that they have. I, I didn't see Mulan. I didn't see Aladdin, the live action one, or I'm referencing live action Mulan that was recently released um, because I saw live action Lion King and it was completely the same as the original Lion King from when we were younger. And I don't know what the, the goal is for making live actions. I guess it's for nostalgia reasons, but I don't think I have enough nostalgia to keep watching live action remakes of previous Disney movies or shows. Yeah, the problem is Disney's brand identity is so focused on its tradition and its historical value because, I mean, I, I like grew up on Star Wars. And I remember when the new Star Wars movies came out, I was like, oh, they're not going to be the same as the original. Granted, they were pretty good, yeah. but they don't have the same traditional historical value as the originals. And same with all the Disney princess movies, all of the original movies that Disney became known for. I don't know how you keep replicating those in live forums and maintain your competitive advantage in the entertainment industry. Like, you have to, at some point redefine your strategy and transition away from that i don't know how disney is going to keep creating content i think they're switching to making more animated stuff to keep children on board on disney plus and if you market to children parents are going to buy the product or service for their kids i think they also make a ton of money off toys as well because that's how uh they own marvel and the 
big portion about the Marvel movies that they've been making is, is their crazy box office records, but it's also the toys that come along with it. I don't know the value that the toys bring in for Disney, but I do know that it was $2 billion, both uh, Avengers Endgame and Infinity War were huge on their for the box box office and that's now on disney plus i think everything under the disney name is on disney plus which is smart that's it's disney but i don't know how disney is going to do so well when COVID is still over and people aren't comfortable going into amusement parks or they have cruise ships too i believe and hotels but they're all relatively attached together yeah, I mean, I think in terms of Disney by itself, the brand name, like, obviously, Disney is a parent company to quite a few subsidiaries. Yes. But I think Disney by itself, they need to stop trying to recreate the past, but just own the past, have Disney Plus, where users, where the next generation still has access to view those traditional movies, keep the toys coming out. But don't try to change the movies because it's going to diminish the value of the traditional ones. And then on the other hand, in terms of like creating like new revenue streams, like they own ABC. That's true. And they Fox. Yeah. And Fox. And ABC brought in about $500 last year and it increased, I think, like $35, um, from the prior year. So clearly that company is growing at a good rate too. And ABC, I would say attracts a lot of new viewers, millennials, they have TV shows, they're always coming up with new content. So in terms of new content, attracting the millennial audience, Gen Z audience, they need to do that through channels like ABC and Fox, as opposed to trying to do it through the Disney brand, because that's not what the Disney brand is. I forgot that they owned ABC, and I Mm -hmm. even forgot about the Fox acquisition, but they do need to, I would say they do need to focus on acquiring like the next people who watch TV or whatever medium people are watching things on because I feel like TV is going to go extinct somehow. You can just have internet access and a Netflix, a, D- a Disney Plus or Hulu, HBO, Stars. I don't know what else there is. Yeah, we Hulu should talk too. about this next week actually, but like cable channels, they're starting, I've just been noticing it for sports. They're starting to have these regional partnerships between cable companies and like sports networks so for example i was trying to watch like a yankees game the other week and the only thing i could get on my tv was the angels because i live in orange county yeah so they block it even if you go on mlb network which really yes which is not associated with a cable company i went on mlb network i went on espn plus i went on every single sports streaming platform to try to get this game and it's all blocked because the regional um, cable companies are in partnerships with the networks to block it unless you're in that region specifically to protect cable companies. Interesting. Do you, wait, do you know who the Yankees were playing? Was it someone? Red Sox? Red Sox? Okay, so it's also in that area as well. Yeah, but literally these partnerships, which almost seems counterproductive. It's like they're trying to save cable networks by having these partnerships and alliances when I think that and they're the secluding the market. Is like, it's inevitable, I think, to some extent. Huh. Yeah. I didn't even I didn't know that. I literally purchased ESPN Plus that day so I could watch it. And guess what? It was blocked. Huh. That's so counterintuitive. Like, why would you seclude a, someone trying to watch it? I'm assuming because the revenue they would get from 
having that game on ESPN Plus is less than the money they were getting from the cable network paying for the partnership. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we'll probably talk about cable television. It's really fascinating. Who's uh, blocking stuff? But, yeah, (laughs) it it also poses the question. See, but the thing is, ABC does well with using platforms. Like, under Disney, ABC, they have partnerships with Netflix. Huge partnerships with Netflix. Um, Like, I think some of my favorite shows, they all ABC shows are all on Netflix. Um, and then ABC also has their own platform online where, if, granted, you do have to use your cable login I think to I'm, get I'm on. Trying that. Yeah, but if you go to ABC.com and use your cable login, then you can watch everything on your computer. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I haven't tried to watch, like, cable TV in a long time. I tend to just find it online. For the sports. <laughs> sports. The only time I watch sports, uh, it tends to be, like, Super Bowl or final episodes of... Or, of like the series of baseball or basketball no like i used i used to pay attention to like basketball uh i was a lakers fan for a bit i'm a big lakers fan and when i can't get my my yankees and red sox game anywhere i'm upset i'm about to go on reddit like are you a yankees fan no, it's that's just an iconic game. Yankees Red Sox. Oh. I don't care who I'm a fan of. Like I'm watching the Yankees and the Red Sox. Huh. I know they have rivalry, rivalry, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, just a little bit. Yeah, but Boston just, and New York. Yeah. Guy. Boston sports are kind of interesting. I think last year. I hate Boston. Celtics well, I love the city. I hate Boston sports. <laughs> uh, New England Patriots. Awful. Oh my gosh. We that, no. I could go on for two hours talking <laughs> about my hatred of the Patriots. You don't want to get me started on that one. Uh, I only pay attention to football like throughout the their season because I was invited to some fantasy football leagues because they were missing some people and they're like, "Hey, you want in?" And I was like, "If it's a chance for me to gamble a few dollars, sure, why not?" <laughs> I won the I won two hundred dollars I think the last time I Impressive. did it. Impressive. All I'll say is Tom Brady's career is dead. End story. Tom Brady's career is dead. Yep. That's a bummer. End story. I had him on my fantasy league last year. To transition into our third topic today, lately I've been seeing someone one of my LinkedIn connections interact with a lot of Tim Tebow posts on LinkedIn, and before I do anything about that, I think about how that plays out. I'm looking at someone's post that I don't really follow, but it's because someone else interacted with it. And I tend to see it, that happens a lot on a LinkedIn feed where uh, someone posts something and someone else likes or comments or something. You see what your connections like and comment and do and all that stuff. And so it makes you think how, how that plays out in the grand scheme of LinkedIn as a platform. And I would say LinkedIn is very good at spreading content that people engage with. And recently, we made a LinkedIn post about this podcast, and that played over well. And... Well, it played over well for some of us. <laughs> some of us are apparently less popular on LinkedIn, but it's fine. <laughs> I don't know how that played out, because Alyssa has more LinkedIn connections than me, but more people engaged with mine, I don't know. And it's it's interesting. It's the organic reach, as what it's called, uh, is very high. Um, organic reach is how a post or yeah, a post gets spread without any influence on it or external influence, I guess. Like or, sponsorship. Yeah. I like, mean, they do have advertisements, but the way Instagram works, it's essentially sponsorships are basically the first things that come up. Yeah, and I'm 
we did not spend a dime on a LinkedIn post. I don't I don't ever want to spend money on social media ads. I want to see how far I can get without them or without yeah, without spending money on it. But it's interesting. It just it flows to everyone else or to others just very easily. I don't know how many people that I don't know saw my post or did anything about it. I saw you how many people viewed my profile off of it. That's very interesting. There's so many metrics you can see off of it and I don't know. I like metrics, uh, and that was one of like the big things I was fascinated to look at day over day since yeah, the post. Yeah, I think it's interesting too how LinkedIn now has this new initiative of stories because <laughs> I equate stories with Snapchat and Instagram, and I think that the majority of Instagram or Snapchat stories I see they either are about social life or for entertainment purposes or sponsorships, like paid advertisements, or now in this day and age, they're political. So I'm curious how LinkedIn's going to leverage this new story initiative on a business networking platform. Yes, stories tend to be a bit more for entertainment. I know people do polls on their stories on Snapchat and uh, Instagram. I think on LinkedIn, you'll probably be able to do that as well. It literally rolled out four or five days ago from time we're recording this and it's going to be interesting how it plays out it tends i believe pretty much everyone who listens to us i can see the metrics of who currently listens to our podcast it's about like 70 percent 22 or 18 to 22 year olds so and i i'm also making the estimate or guess that that age range has both and or one of them uh instagram or snapchat to the 24-hour post where you can see it if you click on someone's profile. And LinkedIn does the same thing. I just think it's interesting because I think that, which again, we talked about this a few episodes again, how Microsoft was potentially buying TikTok. Obviously, that's in the gutter. But I just think it's interesting because Microsoft has had such a different strategy with their platforms because they do revolve around business as opposed to these other companies like Snapchat and Instagram where it is predominantly social entertainment purposes. So I'm curious why they're adopting the same trends or strategies as these other two platforms that are very different from them when in the past, LinkedIn, under like the guidance of Microsoft, they have not adopted any of the same trends really as Instagram or Snapchat. LinkedIn being purely professional, it's, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to play out. Maybe to show company culture or other things because both individuals can make LinkedIn account as well as companies or charities. Like literally any entity can have a LinkedIn account similar to how dogs have link, uh, Instagram accounts, which when people make Instagram accounts for their dogs, that's funny. LinkedIn's interesting. I think LinkedIn is the main, my, it's my favorite social media platform because I'm boring and don't do anything else special with my life. I'm very career focused and oriented. I think if you want to develop a career, you stick to LinkedIn, you make professional comments and you engage with whatever audience you have on LinkedIn. That's a good way to grow your connections as well as stay engaged with the connections you have. Maybe you met them one time at a networking event and you've never talked to them ever since. I think I've connected with people at networking events and haven't talked to them in three years yeah honestly i think that my typical tactic when it's come to networking was predominantly emailing 
not LinkedIn. I don't know why. I just think the level of personalization that I get from emailing people directly because <laughs> perks of working in like buy side banking and having to find companies that aren't necessarily for sale is that you have to find these CEOs emails online. And so I've, I've gotten pretty good at finding emails online. And I just always feel like the degree of personalization is so much better in an email than when I reach out on LinkedIn. And I think that I fall in, I fall in victim to this, like basically making connections just to have a higher number of connections. And I just don't know how LinkedIn, as it grows more and more over the years, is going to maintain a level of personalization in its network. I think there is some times where LinkedIn should curate how people connect with one another. I agree. Because I get invitations from people I have no clue, and there's no way anyone I know would know this person from... Dubai, and I'm not saying like anyone, no one I know knows has contacts in Dubai, but it doesn't make sense. At my age, at my career position, I have never been to Dubai. I don't know why this guy wants to invest or have me invest $50,000 with him. I just, I don't know. I, I will deny any time that that happens. And I think anyone who doesn't know anyone who's reaching out to them should deny them as well. Because I know after a few times someone has done that where they've reached out to people and they've been blocked by that, their account actually gets banned. I know this because I've also talked to LinkedIn customer support about this. Has <laughs> this happened to you before, Hayden? <laughs> no, I haven't been banned off LinkedIn. But <laughs> I, I con contacted LinkedIn one time and I was like, hey, I, I'm like looking for certain people sometimes and... I can't find, I like see their LinkedIn account and I can't visit it. But if I Google it, I can go to their LinkedIn profile that way. What's the deal? And they said, most oftentimes, if they're breaking LinkedIn policies, such as connecting with people or reaching out to people too many times that they um, actually don't know, that they will ban the account. But the web page still stays up and Google will have it cached already and it will stay on Google for a while. So. That's interesting that they keep they still keep the uh, pages up. Yeah. But that's happened to me frequently as well, where I have individuals reaching out. It almost seems as if it's an automated message in yes. one way or another, asking me to thank you for connecting. Would you like to do this investment proposal with me? And I'm like, you have no idea who I am. I'm a college student still. Like I'm going to law school. Like what? Why are you reaching out to me? And granted, I typically just don't respond or I don't add them to my network. But it's just, it's very interesting how people are able to find you in this vast community and target you specifically. Yeah. And then whether their algorithm is strong enough where they can prevent that. Well, I think currently their algorithm is just very open to spreading information and not entirely on restricting the spread of information, which... It has its, yeah, it has its ups and its downs. Like I said, you can make a post and millions of people can see it if it's very popular. However, there's times where posts get spread that probably shouldn't get spread. I remember I saw four posts that were written by the exact same post, somehow made by four different people. And I was like, well, who really interviewed this person? It was one of those stories on LinkedIn where it said, I recently interviewed someone over video call. And I can tell... 
they were going through a tough day, so on and so forth. And it was some, it was a post to show that the interviewer, yeah, the interviewer had compassion towards the interviewee. If all four of them had the exact same written post and none of, none of them knew each other, they weren't from the same company. Uh, how, how do they all have such crazy levels of engagement? And there's times like that where I think repeated posts do need to get taken down or do need to get restricted somehow. I know that Microsoft's team is strong enough to condense it or strike them down somehow. Yeah, so I was reading this thing actually that over the past two years, the LinkedIn algorithm has been modified and updated and it spurred more than a 50% increase in viral activity, which also poses the question as to whether these updates in the algorithm are purely for LinkedIn to become more profitable which I'm not saying that's the pure purpose because obviously you need your competitive advantage to be being a business networking platform. But the fact that this has increased 50% of their viral activity, their publicity, yeah. like, essentially, it just poses the question as to whether this is going to end up being more like the business Instagram platform where it becomes sponsorships ads and a way for LinkedIn and ultimately Microsoft to profit off of it. Profit side where it comes from ads is more B2B, I would guess, for LinkedIn rather than Instagram's B2C. It's very hard to market towards a another business on Instagram, but it's very easy to market towards employees from another company on LinkedIn because you can target specifically what companies people work for. I also find it interesting because I actually think that Instagram copied LinkedIn. Because, oh, Instagram copies yeah, everybody. No, because you know how LinkedIn, their whole thing is like relevancy essentially trumps recency. Yes. And Instagram, you can change that though. Uh, yeah, but Instagram used to be the opposite. Like yes, the default did. settings on LinkedIn, it's relevancy over recency. And Instagram used to be the opposite. It was recency above relevancy. And now they changed the algorithm to where it's relevancy. So it's funny how clearly the LinkedIn model, there are things to be learned from it and gained from it. But it is concerning whether they would go in that other direction just for purposes of profit. Instagram, owned by Facebook, notorious for their uh, IP-stealing actions, where Stories was on Snapchat, Instagram took that, Reels was from TikTok, and Instagram took that. So Instagram's in the business of stealing. And Whoever their patent attorney is, is a, a genius. genius. <laughs> a genius. Absolute genius. They avoid every single IP lawsuit that comes their way. I don't know how they do it, but their lawyer, their attorney is a genius. <laughs> Under Mark Zuckerberg, Instagram is back to its IP stealing ways, or I guess Instagram is under Mark Zuckerberg's old IP stealing I ways. I know, I was going to say, Zuckerberg, <laughs> he's known for something that's stealing IP. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How far can you, can you get off that? Pretty far. Clearly. You can. It's very easy. And that's, it's actually something I'm learning in class right now, strategic management, about having a sustainable competitive advantage. Like it cannot be imitated. And part of that is making sure that your IP is so heavily protected and patented that people can't imitate it. And clearly considering that Instagram has avoided these lawsuits they are finding the loopholes and the patents aren't stringent enough to prevent them from copying the model. So that's like one of the biggest things about this competitive advantage is it has to be patented to the point where it cannot be replicated. That's like 
the big thing where if you set out to do something, don't be afraid to tell other people. Just know that if it's replicatable, then it really has no value of what that what you're trying to hide is. Yeah, and I think that honestly ties into everything we've been talking about today. Like whether it's virtual kitchens in the food industry or whether it's Disney and having all these subsidiaries like ABC or LinkedIn under Microsoft, like the way that you have this competitive advantage that's sustainable is having synergies and fit and this interrelation between all your different divisions. Like it's not just this one division doing things operationally better. It's you have to have these synergies between all these different divisions that play on one another and benefit one another that cannot be replicated easily, if at all, by any of your competitors. Yeah, that's very true. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to call it a day or a, a podcast. I don't know. <laughs> call Can, it a podcast. We're going to call it a podcast. <laughs> Thank you guys for tuning in this week. If you have any comments on anything we've said, feel free to direct message us. Yeah, and if yeah. you have any suggestions for topics we should discuss, I think we've well, if Hayden, if I can convince Hayden, we're doing the cable thing next week. Yeah, we'll do cable. And if you have any other suggestions for topics, please let us know. Awesome. Thank you very much. Have a good one.